Michael Wiggins de Oliveira writes an investment newsletter called Deep Value Returns that gives high-quality investment insights. Michael's focus is on value investing in the great energy transition. He identifies stocks set to grow due to the energy demands made by AI companies, as well as the three Ds, decarbonization, digitalization, and deglobalization. In this episode, you will hear how Michael got into investing full-time, how to pick great stocks to invest in, as well as why you should invest based on value. Like a lot of people um, in the investing world, everyone's got like a little funny story. Um, my funny story is that my wife and I um, were dead broke, like super broke. And, um, you know, we're working and stuff like that and managed to get the first thousand pounds. And we we're like, shoot, my wife, you know, she has this thing which is so important that um, it's called human capital. So she had this idea from her own family that I should invest. And I was kind of new, uh, we were kind of recently married, quote unquote, we've been married for five years, like kind of still in the honeymoon period. And she said to me, uh, you should invest this, this this capital. And I had no idea what this meant. The only thing I knew about investing was those movies uh, that the person has like two phones and like buy, sell. And I was like, wow, these people are so intelligent. How like they can operate two phones at the same time. And I was like, wow, I'll, you know, and I didn't want to tell her that I couldn't do that, operate two phones at the same time. So I went out and I got um, uh, put in a recommendation to, to get a book. And what happened was when I reached the library, that book only had the first edition out. And I was like, okay, I'll take out the first edition. I'll put the reservation for the second edition. And I don't want to name the book because it was a really rubbish book. But I wrote the book and I was like, oh man, you know what? I haven't got a clue what this is. And I read the book uh, and I was like, nah, it doesn't mean anything to me. And I go back to return the book and the second edition has showed up. So then I read the second edition, like straight away afterwards. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I still have no idea. And I'm kind of looking around, I'm looking on the internet and stuff like that. And I hear about this guy, like this like old guy called Warren Buffett. I'm like, like, who's this dude? Why is he always everywhere? And I start to read a little bit about him and I kind of, the way he explains it, you know, thinking about being the owner of a business helped me out. I like, I like really kind of got this, you know, like spent a few more months like learning about Warren Buffett. In the interim period, while I'm debating all this, the third edition of that book comes out. Now, there is no other person on this planet that's probably read three editions of that book and can say categorically that it's rubbish. But I didn't know much of the time. This is like 10 years ago. And... It was a slow grind for me, but I actually realized that investing in the U.S., there's a lot more resources available. And the book that I'd read was about this trader in the U.K. So anyway, after reading three editions of this book, I figured out that I actually probably should not be spending any more time on this book. And I went towards learning about who Warren Buffett was and what is value investing. So value investing is just, it's a catch-all phrase and just means that you're trying to buy something that has some value in it okay now you're trying to buy something for less than it's worth the idea of value investing is that something is not really growing that much quite a mature business there's not a lot of frill there's not a lot of hype and you're able to buy this relatively cheap compared to what it's going to do over the next two three years 
Now, the other side of the coin is growth investing. Growth investing is you're buying up a very hyped up company with the idea that in the next two, three years, it's going to be even more hyped up. Now, those actually over time have merged and what is what used to be called value investing is really like just doesn't mean anything anymore. But the idea is really whether you're a growth investor or a value investor, whatever you want to do, you're trying to buy something that in the next two, three years is going to be worth more. And it's really that simple. Yeah. And so for you, you kind of read three editions of a book that you say is, you know, not too good, but then you've kind of cottoned on to Warren Buffett, who is, you know, deemed to be one of the greatest value investors of all time. You know, he he buys not to sell. He buys to, you know, make more money on building the business and putting in better management teams, all this kind of stuff. So with this mindset, what was it that you kind of went out looking to buy at first? Because a lot of people, when they get into investing, you know, they hear the buzzwords, they hear Forex, tech, you know, currently AI, they want those stocks, but they don't really have any kind of research or reasoning behind why they're buying these stocks. And if they're going to sell or if they're planning to get a return, what kind of return they might get or what price they might sell at. So I'm wondering for you, Michael, what were you looking at what was the sector you were focused on and then what was the first stock you bought i can't remember what the first stock i bought was what i do know is that like a lot of investors you need to make a lot of mistakes to refine your technique like anything that you do whether it's basically building a business or developing a craft whatever you're going to do it's really a case of you failing many times and you looking at life and saying okay you know what I have failed this this far, but I will not give up. And if you have this vision that, okay, you know what? This can be accomplished because someone else has accomplished it. I don't need to get those sorts of returns, but anything that I can do to keep plowing forward and keep grinding and keep learning and not looking towards failure as being final, but looking towards failure as forming the next opportunity. So... The way I try and do it is that, okay, I've learned a lot of mistakes over time. And one of the things that really does make sense to me is having a reasonably, not excessively, but a reasonably diversified portfolio. So when you look at investing, you need to have, you don't need a lot of stocks. I only own 16 stocks. You don't need many stocks. A diversified portfolio can just be different types of ideas. So for example, um, something that your 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 um, viewers will be very much aware of, uh, something like Google. I own Google, okay? So this is a large mega cap business, my biggest uh, mega cap business. So that is a mega cap. But I also own relatively smaller businesses too. So sometimes in the market, you can have an idea about something and you try and have an expression of that idea. So you're trying to buy the business and you're trying to be the owner of that business for the length of period that you are investing in that business. And the market may or may not align with you in that period of time. Obviously, ideally, you buy the stock, you know, 12 months later, it's up, everyone is singing and dancing and you're a genius. But there are times when the market either is not cooperating or you are wrong on the thesis. So you need to have different types of investments a diversified portfolio so that you can basically stay the course. I call it having sanity checks. So you need to be able to have certain things that are not necessarily correlated hypothetically. I own a lot of stuff to do with the energy transition, which I'm happy to discuss in a couple of minutes. But that 
that Google investment that I mentioned, I mentioned that because, hey, I am very passionate about the energy transition. This is something that I'm really bullish about. This is it's my passion. I'll try and think a lot about it. But I also need other ideas in the portfolio because sometimes energy can be in or out of favor. So I need to have something in the portfolio that is going to not necessarily correlate with how the energy market is performing at this moment in time. So by having a vision, it's very different from being able to say, okay, I am buying this to scratch my ego. Because in investing, it's very easy for, it's a very competitive sport. And people like to look for the next edge. They try and kind of figure out some more insights than someone else. But actually, in reality, the best investments are actually relatively simple. So let's go back to Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett's investment in Coca-Cola, it has just two variables. He says, I expect that over time, the volume of Coke sold will go up and the number of shares this business has will go down. So if you have, if you have fewer shares outstanding and you own the same amount of shares, proportionately that increases. Let's say, hypothetically, you own two shares and there's 100 shares outstanding, then you own 2% of the company. If over time the number of shares outstanding decreases, let's say, hypothetically, to 10, just for round numbers, and you still own those two shares, then you own 20% of the company. So then your value inside the company increases substantially. So you haven't done anything. You haven't deployed any more capital. You just stuck around and the number of shares has decreased and your ownership of the value of the company has increased. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. most definitely. So, so it's it's a very simple thesis. It's not very complicated. And with investing, it's sometimes you get in a process that you want to scratch your ego and you want to try and outsmart somebody and you look for some things. And more often than not, every time that you try and do that, you're overcomplicating. And that's what a lot of times investors get caught up in. They overcomplicate. So, you know, just jokingly, but... Um, Einstein's theories uh, are valued very highly by many people because it's so simple, right? E equals mc squared. So it's it is a beauty in the simplicity, right? So trying to find something that is really simple and try not to overcomplicate. But we are so drawn into trying to overcomplicate something, particularly when you're looking, for example, for uh, I own some some um, energy businesses that are linked to this whole electrification of the grid and you kind of like oh what china is doing this and you you're trying you're trying too much and that's sometimes what leads you into a problem so you need to have a, a view of what's happening but try to make it quite simple so that there is what uh, warren buffett and his disciples called a large margin of safety or, or we can say a margin of error or safety net really so you're just trying to make an investment that it doesn't need a lot of heroics to happen for you to be reasonably re uh, to get a reasonable reward. Yeah, and I think a lot of people when they're starting out with investing, you know, you start out with your thousand pounds seed capital, and you know, you probably increase that pot over time so that you could get you know better returns or take bigger positions in some places, but. A lot of people start out and, you know, they think this thousand pounds, that's it. You know, I need to turn this thousand into the million type thing. And realistically, what they're lacking is the research part. You know, you spoke about having a diversified portfolio, but it's also about having a, a diversified kind of research pool. Like I've seen a lot of people go, oh, you know, crypto is going to be big. And they look for things to support that as opposed to looking at the things that might go wrong. 
And, you know, it's knowing both sides of the argument and then being able to come to a reasonable judgment on things where you will kind of, you know, make better investments and make better kind of decisions when it comes to what sectors you're interested in. And for you, you are a writer and a newsletter kind of owner on a website called Seeking Alpha. But that's kind of you putting all your sources and resources together. And I'm wondering for you, where do you do your research? How can we get the listener to kind of be looking in the same places you're looking as well as looking at the stuff that you put together and kind of digest and give your take on? So uh, so I will come to that. I'll just answer something. So you said initially about looking for disconfirming evidence. So that's really what um, Charlie Munger uh, is... Um, they call him Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He's the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Charlie Munger says that you have a, have a multidisciplinary approach to investing. That means you not just learn about little businesses, but you try understand a whole myriad of different disciplines. So he very much talks about following in Darwin's path of not looking for something that aligns with your hypothesis, but looking for something that disconfirms your original hypothesis has a famous quote that is, every year that I've not destroyed my best idea from last year is a year that I've destroyed. So you're always trying to find something to learn, to grow. There's that expression uh, that uh, if you rest, you rust. So you need to always try to chop away at your best, most cherished ideas and look for why you're wrong. So that's the first thing. The second one, we're talking just briefly about crypto. It's very, very important for if you have a thousand pounds or whatever, it's very important to think that that's, let's say, a million. So your work is to look towards preserving that capital. It's Warren Buffett's rule number one, don't lose capital. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So you are trying to start with that thousand pounds and you're thinking, okay, this is a million, okay? And I can't lose this. I've given too much blood towards this, too much sweat equity. This is my dream. I've, I've made it. So work to preserve it, okay? So, for example... Warren Buffett's returns over time have been approximately 20% annualized compounded growth rates. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but just means that over time, his portfolio has grown on average by 20% a year. It kind of more or less means that every kind of six years, seven years, it doubles, okay? A bit less sometimes, you know, sometimes it's kind of like closer to four and a half years. But basically what it means is that he's not making those heroic bets, okay? It just trying to snowball that up very slowly. In fact, a lot of people might not know this, uh, that Warren Buffett actually made um, more than 90% of his wealth after the age of 60 years old. So it's really that slow growing or compounding, that slow growing of, this, of his wealth by 20% a year, you know, the good years and bad years, but it's not really trying to get that 4x return, okay? The next thing, how do I get my resources? So, you know, a lot of people kind of like to say that there's like some kind of shortcut. And I, I, I love it that there was, but there isn't, right? So I work really hard. I grind every single day, man. Like I have a, a very disciplined work ethic. Every single moment, I, it make, I make it count, okay? So I, I wake up quite early. I go to sleep quite late and I'm always working. I'm always working. I'm always following companies and... It's difficult for um, an outside investor to to have the time and inclination to do what I do. Um, I'm not bragging here, but it, like literally, this is my life. This is my dream. You know, I'm grinding. So 
it's quite difficult for someone to do that, but people don't have to do that. There is another way to go about it. You, a person can just buy, let's say, a passive index, and you that an index is just basically, um, for example, if you look at, let's say, what's called the S&P 500, or in the UK, they've got the FTSE 100. In the FTSE 100, is just 100 biggest companies on the London Stock Exchange. Now, this is a bit difficult because the FTSE 100 is actually a lot of multinationals that have actually nothing to do with the UK. Uh, but historically, it used to be the case, but it does not anymore. But if you look at, let's say, the, the S&P 500, those are the 500 biggest companies in the United States, which normally, to a large extent, have a lot of dealings in the US because it's like a big market, but they're also quite a multinational company. For example, if you look at Apple, they sell phones in China. You know, So it's that makes up about... Um, in the ballpark of 4% of the weight of that index, okay? So um, there are 500 companies, but let's say the top um, 15 companies make up 20% of the weight of that index. And then as you move down to smaller companies, they have a, a smaller proportion representation in that index. So the way to really do this is either you buy the index, which is a that's something that I say to people, you know, that's very legit way. If you haven't got the time and inclination and you have another passion, why don't you just buy the index and then make a calendar appointment on the first of each month, you put, let's say, £100 into that index and you don't look at it and you just let it snowball. A lot of people don't do that and, you know, people want some kind of excitement and that's fine and there are different ways of investing. Uh, what I do is I own uh, about 16 companies, mostly to do uh, with the electrification of everything, really to do with the energy transition. And that I have some specific companies that I'm happy to discuss as well. Um, but that is kind of a much more hands-on approach. And in my newsletter, I say, okay, um, we're in the middle right now of earnings season. So a lot of companies are reporting their earnings. I'm saying, okay, Company XYZ has done well. This is what they look for the next year. This is how you think about the valuation. This is a good time to buy this company, or this is not a good time. This is a good time to sell this company. We've made a lot of money. Uh, it, it's I, I provide that service as part of my newsletter. Um, but when you're looking at um, an individual investor, it's quite difficult to do that, you know, because people have a lot of different commitments in their life, and it's a full time job. This, as I said at the start, it's a very competitive sport. It works all around the clock, every day of the week. Uh, so there's always someone out there that's younger than you, has more resources than you, that's always trying to outwork you. So you need to have some sort of process to go through that. And it's there's no shortcuts, really. Yeah. I mean, one thing that you kind of have that's going in your favor is that you have a newsletter that's got a lot of subscribers that also value what you're doing and you know over time are obviously seeing a return on the information that you're giving out so i wonder if you can talk me through the kind of first days weeks months even years of running your newsletter what did that look like what made you decide like my knowledge or my insight is good enough that i need to share it with people and i need to share it with people for a for a fee type thing yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was, it was really. Uh, I was really shy, and um, I was. Um, it was silly that I didn't start earlier, and I should have. Uh, I could have, and I would have, but I didn't. And in hindsight, that was a mistake because you, you, you know, when you start out, you're just trying to figure out like 
really, what is the value the people are getting from this, you know? And I look back to myself six months ago and six months before that, and I was not as good as an investor as I am right now. So this is a learning curve. I said at the start that if you rest, you rust. You always have to be able to keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. And when I started out, I was really shy. I was like kind of really even afraid of sharing my ideas. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely have improved. I believe I'm not just saying that. I believe that I have improved in the quality of the ideas that I'm providing by providing, you know, the, the, the positives and the, the negatives of each idea, of each investment. So I, I have a much more clarity of thought. And I could have said I had this interview six months ago and I would have said that I had a clarity of thought then. But I look now and I'm like, okay, I'm much better. Like I can see more. But it's like, it's kind of like knowledge. The people say knowledge is like an island and the, 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 the sea outside the island is what you don't know. And the more knowledge you have, the island grows bigger. But actually there's more questions that you don't know. And it's you continue learning. You know, it's really a process that uh, you have to be very disciplined with your time. So it's not only about putting out the content, but researching as well. And I am very disciplined with how I spend my time. Every single uh, slot, I kind of write it down to like half an hour in my calendar so that I know. So there's no kind of, it's like, uh, there's no ambiguity. What should I be doing now at this point in time? Like, is this the time that I should be reading? Is this the time I should be engaging with someone? I think a lot about that. And um, yeah, so I, I when I started out with the newsletter, I kind of had an idea of what was valuable to people, but I've actually improved quite a lot. And I think that nowadays, what's more important is to align the members in my vision of the importance of slow and steady wins the race. Because when I started out, I was trying to impress people. Okay? Oh, I know this negative information. And like, that's not that valuable. It's much more important to get people to understand that slow and steady is the way to go. And I gave the example at the start that when you have, let's say a thousand pounds, pretend that's a million. And I always say to people in investing, it makes zero difference how much money you make. The only difference that matters is how much money you keep. So there are times in the market when the market is favorable, times in the market when things are not favorable. And you need to know that it doesn't matter what you're making at the top, it's what you keep at the bottom that's the difference. Yeah, no, most definitely. And with that view to kind of having a long-term, slow and steady investment cycle, you're saying that energy is currently the thing that's caught your interest. So besides all the kind of buzzwords flying around, you know, we've mentioned crypto, I briefly said AI, you're like energy, the energy transition specifically, that's where it's at. You know, obviously everybody nowadays is seeing a Tesla on the road, an electric this, an electric that, you know, we're trying to get off these fossil fuel based things so i'm wondering you know if you could talk to me a bit about the energy transition and the energy sector as a whole and you know what that looks like as an investor thank you yeah so the way that i explain that to my members is there's three d's decarbonization digitalization and deglobalization and these three trends are aligned together so the path of a government is to provide the citizens and businesses with energy security, okay? And the way to do that is you try and provide energy supply to your businesses or your citizens, 
And in a period of deglobalization, that becomes more difficult because, as everyone probably knows, you know, uh, Russia stopped providing natural gas to Europe and that caused a lot of calamity in 2022. Uh, that narrative has come down slightly, but that has only come down because the weather was really favorable in last winter, that it was a very warm winter. And in the UK, in northern parts of Europe, um, the summer has been very, very cool. So it was kind of two back to back, uh, abnormal uh, and seasonally uh, periods. Now, you can't really count on that, okay? But, and then the final one, which is the, the, the digitalization. The digitalization, you already alluded to that, that's really about AI. So when you have a large data center that runs AI, that's really energy intensive, okay? For example, uh, we're having this call uh, via Zoom, uh, let's say it lasts an hour. That amount of energy that we, you and I, are using right now over this hour is approximately the same as if, if we, if half a bus of people were to be transported 10 kilometers, okay? So we are really consuming a lot of energy as a society. And so digitalization is not only, let's say, AI, it's also about having inside your home a smart home, mm. okay? A smart home would typically mean charging your electric vehicle. You may have one electric vehicle, Maybe you will in the future have two electric vehicles. So charging your electric vehicle from your house. Uh, it's not quite big in the UK, but a lot of places uh, in Europe. And I suspect over time outside of London, uh, it will be quite a big thing. Heat pumps. So a heat pump, a lot of your viewers might not be familiar with this. So a heat pump is a way to get energy to warm up your house um, that is charged off electricity rather than a convention a conventional um, natural gas boiler. So these take quite a bit of space. You need a, quite a large box outside. And the way it works, it's kind of like the opposite of a refrigerator. So a fridge has like a refrigerant gas going round and round and round, and it cools down a space. And the heat pump is kind of that idea, but it works in reverse. It takes the difference between the temperature outside and inside your home, and it goes on a pipe and it uses a refrigerant and it goes really, really fast. And the differential causes actually warm air to blow into the house. And these are obviously uh, more energy efficient, but they're also a lot greener. And then it takes us to the next part of the equation. So it's only greener, this whole electrification, you know, having the EVs and having the heat pumps and having these data centers dependent on what is the supply of energy, okay? So a lot of your viewers will be aware of the energy transition. The energy transition is how we get renewables to become a bigger proportion of the electricity supply, okay? So in Europe, uh, mostly it's in that ballpark of approximately 20% for, uh, of our energy consumption comes from um, renewable sources. This is basically um, wind, and uh, solar panels. So the problem with wind and solar panels is that it's intermittent, okay? So the weather may be okay, or the weather may not be okay. Uh, the, um, the sun may be blowing, the sun may not be, uh, the sun may be shining, the sun may not be shining. So this uh, energy is intermittent or called variable, okay? So that energy that is variable 
gets added to the grid. But let's say you come home, you need to charge your electric vehicle. There's no variability there. You need a lot of power and you need it like, like now. So the way that energy comes at this moment in time is that it's very stable. It's kind of typically will be burned through either coal or natural gas or uh, in some instances uh, from uh, nuclear power or maybe not so much in the UK, but you can have uh, hydroelectric power as well. But essentially, there's not a lot of variability. You kind of know what you're getting. But with the renewables, you don't know. Okay, so it can be that at this moment in time, you get a lot of power or you may not get a lot of power. So how do you control for that? So the electric grid has to control for that. And just one final complication here is that often where you need the energy and where the energy is produced are not necessarily in the same place. So let's look at a capital like London. So there's a lot of people, a lot of energy requirement there, but you can't really build a wind farm in the center of London. So you might have to build it somewhere, I don't know, like uh, in the North Sea or somewhere, I don't know. Uh, you need to be able to build a wind farm and then you need to store that energy somewhere, okay? So you have a first problem is that you have to transport that energy from point A to where you actually need it. Then you need to store that energy. So there's a few problems here. And the next part of the problem is that Let's say you don't need it in London now, but there's, let's say, in Birmingham, there's a, a massive, uh, I don't know, sports a sports gig or whatever. So you need to kind of transport that energy somewhere else. So there's a few different problems here. And the final aspect is that it's taken us approximately 20 years to get the, the amount of energy coming from renewables to about 10 to 15%. It's taken us a long, long time. And people are trying to speed up that process so that by 2030, we're getting a lot of energy from um, wind and solar panels. And that may or may not happen, but there's some problems here. The first problem is that you need to, to build that. You need the construction of it. The second problem is that it takes time. And obviously, it's very capital intensive. So globally, around the world, uh, this year, it's on target. The, the green energy transformation is on target to spend five trillion dollars okay so that's a lot of money okay and that is really not making a large movement because as i said at the start about 15 to 20 percent depends on the country it comes from renewable sources okay to get that to go from let's say 20 percent to 40 percent is a doubling of the amount of infrastructure so you need a lot more copper wiring you need a lot more uh, of the electrical grid infrastructure you need a lot of batteries to store that power so there's all kinds of bottlenecks. So it's one thing to have an aspiration and to say, okay, this is what we're gonna do. And there's another part that's actually getting this in place. So just to summarize all this, at this moment in time, the bulk of our energy in the UK, for example, or in the US, the bulk of the electricity comes from natural gas. We are trying to decarbonize. Decarbonize means displacing uh, coal with natural gas. So that's one part of the equation. But we don't want to be contingent on natural gas for too long. We really want to build out our renewable sources to get those to go from, let's say, 20% to, let's say, 40% and beyond, you know, ultimately to get 60 or 80% of our energy from uh, renewable sources. So there's a lot of different aspects here, and there's a lot of different question marks and uncertainties and opportunities to, uh, to invest in this process. Um, does that make sense so far? Yeah. It does, cool. yeah. Um, so, so I'll just I'll just complete this this little part here. So, 
I think, in my opinion, that there is this move and there's aspiration to do something, but then there's reality. The reality is that things are going to take a bit longer than I think. So personally, I believe something investing like in a producer of natural gas is a good middle ground because there's one thing that to say, by 2030, we're going to have this. And then there's quite another thing to say, actually, between today, 2023 and 2030 is a long period of time. Like what's going to happen in this bridge period? And I think investing in something, for example, like a natural gas producer is a good way to express this idea that we're discussing right here. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people, when they hear what you're saying about the 3Ds, they go, okay, digitization. So I should be investing in a company that's going to make an invention that's potentially going to do this and do that. And you're saying, go back a step and go to the people that are building the infrastructure, the people that are making these heat pumps. That's a much better place to invest as opposed to going for, say, like a Tesla, because a, a Tesla yeah. is a brand as opposed to, you know, the company that's actually making the batteries or refining the copper. I mean, I, I, that's mm -hmm. kind of my understanding of where your investing head is at. Like you're investing in the manufacturers as opposed to investing in the, the brands as you would. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good example because, for example, we've, we've investing in, let's say, a, a Tesla, it, you know, there's a lot of high expectation already, okay? Tesla is obviously the leader. That would be a reasonable investment. Nothing wrong with that. But a lot of people try to say, okay, what's going to be the next Tesla? And that's the problem with investing mm -hmm. because it's very easy to say in hindsight that Tesla was a great return, a great investment. It's quite a different thing to say what's going to be the next Tesla because the vast majority of businesses fail. The vast majority. Only a few selection of businesses actually have any staying power beyond 30 years. If you look uh, historically at most companies in the US, there's only a few companies that have been around 50 years or more. So it's quite difficult to find the next Amazon, the next Tesla, the next whatever. But it's once you found something, you have to make sure you're not overpaying for the future growth of that business. So for example, um, I have no, I know there's a lot of people that are bearish and they're like negative on Tesla. A lot of people that are hoping for the future of Tesla. Uh, I don't have any view on that, but there's a lot of expectation that may or may not work out. With investing in, let's say, which I'm uh, essentially advocating for, with investing in a natural gas producer, the expectations are really, really low. No one's excited about investing in this space. So the expectations are low. And if you can see that over the next two years, this business will be producing more money, more uh, free cash flow. If it's going to be producing more money, then you're going to be able to pay a reasonably low amount for that future profit or free cash flow. Free cash flow just means the, the amount of money that the business is spewing out, really. It's just a technical term. doesn't really mean much. Um, but essentially, you have to think about what are the expectations today, for example, for Tesla, and can Tesla really grow into those expectations over the next two or three years? And then you look at something like a natural gas producer and you say, okay, what are the expectations today relative to what it can do over the next two years, for example? You don't need to look out too far because 
um, a lot of people, you know, try and kind of think, oh, what's going to happen over the next five years? And nobody can predict the next five years. Like nobody could predict COVID and nobody could have predicted Ukraine. And everyone says, oh, yeah, oh, it was obvious in hindsight that things X, Y, Z. But it's, it's, the world is unpredictable. It's much easier to try and have an outlook over the next 12 months than it is to have over the next 12 years. You know, you can, it, it, that makes sense, I think, yeah. Yeah, no, most definitely. Uh, I think one thing what a lot of people try to do is, like you said, they try to bet on what is the next big thing as opposed to trying to think what's actually going to be sticking around for a long time. What are the things that are going to definitely exist in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time? And my example of that at the moment is, you know, a company like Google or the parent company of Google, which is Alphabet, you know, the same with Amazon. People don't know that Amazon does more than deliver parcels. You know, they deliver parcels. Yes, that's one of the things we all know them for. As well as that, they've got AWS. They've got a whole bunch of other logistics things they offer out. And if you look at the kind of machine that is Amazon, there's no way that that company can go away in some way, shape or form because it's so ingrained in so many other bigger businesses like it would take for a you know a world-changing event where risky investments don't matter for those type of companies to go away but i'm wondering we've mentioned you know a few of the big companies that are around right now you know for for the people that know the fang companies but in your world in the energy transfer world what is the amazon or the google of that world just so our listener could go do some research around them and kind of have an understanding of your expertise so the business that I own, for example, for within the natural gas space is called Antero Resources, and that's for the natural gas. For the uh, copper business, I own something called Tech Resources. I own a steel company called United States Steel. So what you're trying to do, for example, when you're trying to invest, is you're trying to buy something for less than it's worth. So we discussed before about Amazon. So you're absolutely correct that Amazon is going to be around for the next 10, 15, whatever years. But you have to think about the expectations. The expectations are relatively high for this business. So as you discussed, um, Amazon has the bulk of its revenue is from what's called the e-commerce, the retail side of the business. And within that, it has the North America business and it has what's called the international business. The international business is predominantly Europe, okay? Now, they make a lot of money from the North America business, but they actually make very little profitability from the international business, okay? So you make a lot of revenues, a lot of sales uh, from the e-commerce business, but the profitability isn't that exciting, okay? It just, it's just a retail business. You can think of Tesco, you can think of those kind of things. It's, it's, it's not that exciting. What is exciting for Amazon shareholders is what's called AWS. This is the storage of data, okay? Now, this side operation is much, much bigger, okay? This side operation makes a lot of profits and this excites people because that's really where the crown jewel is of Amazon, is that AWS business. Now, here's where things get a bit slightly more complicated. Ironically, uh, Amazon is actually quite far back in terms of the AI investments. And this is kind of my shock a lot of people because the irony was that in approximately ballpark, I think 2007, Amazon launched this AWS product and it's basically data storage. And they were like four years ahead of Microsoft. Microsoft is supposed to be like the visionaries in whole IT infrastructure. And they were like sleeping at the wheel. And for four years, 
nothing is happening, and then they kind of wake up and yeah, you know, we might as well get this this uh, this data stuff. Maybe it's actually for real. Let's do this data storage facility. And obviously now we know about Azure, but back in like 2011, more or less that ballpark, people didn't really think that it was going to be a big thing. Obviously now we know that it's a big thing. Okay, so when you look at let's say something like Amazon, they've been able to reinvent a portion of their business but it's quite difficult to reinvent a portion of your business they succeeded then and people hope that they may succeed again in reinvesting into being able to be relevant in ai now you obviously know about ChatGTP, so microsoft made a massive investment in ChatGTP, and ChatGTP ignited this whole discussion about ai now Ironically, uh, so Amazon reports earnings tonight. So uh, what I'm discussing right now, I'll have it like the next update tonight. But for all intents and purposes, they their investments into AI are really, really quite small. They made an investment about uh, three or four weeks ago, and they deployed a hundred million into investing into like this small little startup. Now compare that with what um, Microsoft spent. Microsoft spent to invest solely to invest. In ChatGTP, they invested $10 billion. So you can see it's a massive magnitude of difference. So it shows how far behind Amazon is that they're making these kind of really paltry investments to, to do something, to show to their shareholders, yeah, we, we're doing something about AI. Now, just because you have data storage doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to incorporate all this AI technology to be able to provide your users with insights what could happen is that you store most of your data in let's say a a cloud of some sort for example aws or azure or google cloud you could you could store a portion of your data there but you go for a different company to get insights into that data so for example the term here is findability okay so you want to find an insight from the data to instruct you to do something, okay? Let's, uh, for, for the sake of discussion, let's say you're a Formula One car and you, you know that that side of the, the wheel is not turning as fast. Can you get from all that data that of you going round and round and round in laps, can you get some kind of insight from that to tell you, okay, you need to adjust something else. So to be able to get some sort of insight, you may be able to use AWS in the future, but you may have to use something else. So that's a big question mark. And that's really, let's say, where the challenge and the opportunity is for something like Amazon. So Amazon has the bulk of their business, which is really just a retail business, but then can they really reinvent something? And it's actually quite difficult to reinvent into a, a new operation. Let me just give you an example of Alphabet. So Alphabet, has for many years been investing in what they call the other bets. And what that incorporates is self-driving cars, okay? So for many years, they've been investing in self-driving cars and they're not really made a big, a big dent there. So you can be like a really high-tech business, company culture, maybe everything swimming and dancing, but the ability to make an investment and to turn out a new revenue stream, a new operation from that is often quite difficult because, you know, business is really competitive. So just because 
a business is around today does not necessarily mean that it's going to be thriving as much as people expect over the next two, three years. So you as an investor, that's really your, the business, the bet that you're making. Are people's expectations relatively low to where this business can be in the next two, three years? Or are expectations kind of in the ballpark of fairly valued? For example, I could make the argument that Amazon kind of like fairly valued already. Yes, there is some excitement that it may be um, more profitable over the next two, three years, but can it really uh, impress investors? That's really the question um, that um, a person should be asking. Not so much, is the business going to be wrong? But expectations that the business is going to be around and thriving. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And Michael, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on and definitely on a regular basis because, you know, investing is always changing. The market is always moving. But you seem so passionate about investing. And one thing I want to know is, you know, you're here, you've got your newsletter, you're every day deep in the markets, understanding what's going on and learning. But what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? I like reading. Um, I'm, I'm fanatic about reading. I spend a lot of time um, reading books. Um, I'm, I, I, the way I think about it is that the work that I put in for my newsletter, let's say that's the work that I need to do, but the reading is where I'm really investing in myself. You know, rich people uh, are able to really take time out to invest in something, right? I want to invest in myself because I believe I'm the best asset that I can be. And... I will try to allocate time every single day to read 20 pages. Obviously, sometimes I'm not as successful in that, but I make this rule. Come hell or high water, I've got to read those 20 pages, and I'll just go through it. The way I think about it is, let's say, an athlete, right? An athlete has to go to the gym. There's no questions like, do I feel like it? My knee's hurting or whatever. You just go in and there and you do it, right? Your knee hurts, you work out your knee back. Uh, whatever you know you need to do it there's no questions asked you need to go in and do it and the same that i do with reading so for me sometimes i'm tired you know got family commitments and you know i got my job and this and that but i'm putting in the grind to read those 20 pages because sometimes you know you don't feel like it and doing something when you don't feel like it that's really what the discipline is so i try very much hard to spend that investment in myself to read something that i'm very very uh, passionate about where can the people find you online? Deep Value Returns is the name of my newsletter. And people can come in and just chat and see what's happening. I show the portfolio. And yeah, there's, I do a Zoom call every week. And it's kind of like a webinar. And we just kind of chat like you and I chatting. So there are people that are better investing. Some people are worse investing. Some people are just new to this journey. Some people have been on this journey for quite a while. Some people are like hedge funds and they just want kind of like one or two ideas. And so... They come on my uh, Zoom call or my, join my newsletter and they can just uh, deep value returns and they can just see what's on offer. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.